Good evening, my friends. I hope it is midnight wherever you are. Let's imagine that it's the witching hour. Why don't you turn out all the lights? My name is Josh Hitchens, and I am your host tonight. Welcome to Going Dark Theater. This is a podcast about finding the humanity behind the horror. And this midnight, I will tell you the tale of the Christmas portrait. About two weeks before Christmas in 1929, Charlie Lawson, a farmer who lived in the rural community of Germanton, North Carolina, announced to his family that he was taking them all on a trip to the town of Winston-Salem, a 45-minute drive away. Charlie Lawson also told his family he was going to buy each of them a new set of clothes and then pay to have a family portrait photographed. This was unusual. Charlie Lawson was a sharecropper, and although the farm made money, there was scarcely enough for the entire family to get by. The Lawson family had never celebrated Christmas before. There was never a tree, and the children never received any presents except those donated by neighbors who felt sorry the kids were missing out on the yearly visit from Santa Claus. But the Christmas of 1929 would be very different for the Lawson clan. The Lawson family consisted of Patriarch Charlie Lawson, 43 years old, his wife Fanny, 37 years old, and their seven children, Marie, 17 years old, Arthur, 16 years old, Carrie, 12 years old, Maybell, seven years old, James, four years old, Raymond, two years old, and finally, the baby, Mary Lou, four months old. All nine of them piled into the Lawson family car, a truck in which many of the older children had to ride in back for the exciting and rare journey into town. During the ride to town, Fanny asked her husband, How much are we to spend on each outfit, Charlie? 
This'll probably be real expensive buying a store-bought outfit for everyone at once. Charlie Lawson told his wife, Don't matter. I got the money to pay for it. I want the whole family to have a set of store-bought clothes. Besides, it's all part of the Christmas surprise. After the family had chosen the new clothes that brought them the most joy, including 12-year-old Carrie who insisted on grown-up silk stockings, Charlie Lawson had everyone change into their new clothes, putting their old homemade ones in bags. Now it was time for the family portrait to be made at the Winston-Salem Photography Studio. The Lawson Family Photograph of 1929, which is freely available online, is striking. The matriarch, Fanny, holds baby Mary Lou in her arms. The oldest children, Marie and Arthur, wear frozen expressions that are indecipherable. The younger children, Carrie, Maybell, James, and Raymond, wear stoic expressions that make you wonder what they have seen. Each of them is looking directly at the camera, and even now, you can see something dark hidden within their eyes. None of them are smiling, but they look directly into the camera's lens, defiant, open. Only one member of the Lawson family is looking slightly away from the camera's all-seeing gaze. It is the father, Charlie Lawson, and he is the only one in this family Christmas portrait who is smiling. It is an enigmatic smile, the smile of a man who is thinking of something else. Two weeks after this family photograph was taken, every member of the Lawson clan except one would die on Christmas Day, 1929. My primary source of research for this tale is the book The Meaning of Our Tears, written by Trudy J. Smith, originally published as White Christmas, Bloody Christmas. The Meaning of Our Tears is one of the best true crime books I have ever read. Trudy J. Smith spoke with everyone affiliated with this tragedy left alive, and her work is notable for its kindness and for its relentless mission to tell the truth as much as it can be known. 
The physical copy of this book is available for purchase directly from the author at www.trudyjsmith.com, and you can also purchase her book on Amazon Kindle for under $6. I cannot recommend it highly enough. I would also like to dedicate this episode of Going Dark Theater to my friend and my co-worker at the Ghost Tour of Philadelphia, Megan, who first brought this true dark tale to my attention. It is one that should be told. The people who died should be remembered. As Charlie Lawson's niece, Stella Lawson Bowles, said in 1990, as she told Trudy J. Smith the long-buried family secret of why this bloody atrocity was committed, there comes a time for the truth to come out. There is a time for everything. Content Warning This is a story about the human truth behind an infamous historical incident of murder, suicide, and abuse within one American family. It is a story like many other stories, I will never linger gratuitously on the details in my telling, but I have a responsibility to tell the truth. I would like to take this moment to lift up the organization RAIN, the Rape, Abuse, and Incest National Network. From their website, www.rainn.org, Rain created and operates the National Sexual Assault Hotline 800-656-HOPE in partnership with more than 1,000 local sexual assault providers across the country and operates the safe helpline for the Department of Defense. Rain also carries out programs to prevent sexual violence, help survivors, and ensure that perpetrators are brought to justice. To all survivors who this story may touch, I hope you will use this resource if you need it and know that you are not alone. In her book, The Meaning of Our Tears, 
author Trudy J. Smith sets the scene of the crime. The Lawson farm was large. It included more than 100 acres. The old cabin the family lived in was reported to be more than 200 years old at the time of the murders. The house consisted of two floors. The lower floor had one large room in the front, which was approximately 17 feet by 30 feet. A lean-to-type kitchen was added to the back of the house and was the kitchen and dining area. It was narrower, but the same length as the front portion of the house. The front porch stretched across the length of the front of the house. A single front window was situated on the right side. An extremely narrow stairwell, approximately 28 inches wide, led to the upstairs attic bedroom. The stair steps themselves were so badly worn from the many years of footsteps that the steps had the appearance of sagging in the middle. The large living room on the lower floor contained two standard-sized beds, one of which was a trundle bed and a chest of drawers with a large mirror. The room also contained an upright phonograph and some chairs. Close by her mother's bed, to keep her near the warmth of the fireplace, was tiny Mary Lou's crib. Three fireplaces provided heat for the cabin. The fireplace and the upstairs bedroom was identical to the one on the lower floor. The kitchen area also contained a fireplace. For further warmth, there was a pot-bellied stove in the corner of the main living area. On the walls were numerous photographs, many reported to be photos of family members. Other items, like hats, were hung on nails on the walls. In Fanny's kitchen, Charlie had made one very long table by hand early in their marriage that accommodated the large family. On either side of the table was a long bench, also handmade by Charlie. The rural community of Germantown, North Carolina, was filled with the unspoiled beauty of nature. But the existence of the human beings who made a living off the land was a hard one. Several branches of the Lawson family lived in this place. Not only the family of Charlie and Fanny Lawson, but also Charlie's brother, Marion Lawson, and his wife, Jetty, and their children lived nearby. There was no birth control back then and the wives bore the extreme burden of giving birth to upwards of ten children in their lifetimes. 
not all of whom were guaranteed to live into adulthood, but children were necessary to work the large tobacco farms and help run the family households. As soon as kids were able to work, they went into the fields to help. The Lawson families, and many like them, did not directly own the land they lived on most of the time. They were tenant farmers, sharecroppers, doing all the back-breaking work of cultivating and harvesting a yearly crop and then selling the fruits of their labor in the town of Winston-Salem nearby. The money they were paid for a good crop was all that mattered for their survival. If they failed to make enough money to pay the person who owned their farm, they would be homeless. That was the grim reality they lived with every day of every year of their lives. Charlie Lawson fell in love with Fanny Mannering in the autumn of 1910. They were married on March 12, 1911, and soon set up housekeeping as husband and wife. Charlie was 24 at the time of the marriage, and Fanny was 19. Trudy J. Smith in her book, The Meaning of Our Tears, describes Fanny Lawson like this. Fanny Mannering Lawson was born on October 13, 1892. Fanny was a quiet, hard-working young woman with classically sharp facial features and piercing, light blue-gray eyes that twinkled when she laughed. As the summer of 1911 bloomed, Fanny realized she was pregnant with her first child. Marie LaVon Lawson was born on April 3, 1912. Their family quickly grew. Their first son, Arthur, was born in 1913, followed by a second son they named William in 1916, and then a second daughter, Carrie, in 1917. Charlie Lawson was remembered by all who knew him as a man who deeply loved his wife and his children but also as a man very quick to anger and deep rages. Both things can be true. In the early winter months of 1919, Charlie Lawson was afflicted with a rare form of arthritis, which left him largely confined to his bed. He worried that he would not be well enough to do the work he needed on the farm in spring and summer to support his growing family. Charlie Lawson's landlord at the time was a man named Walter Tuttle, 
Also, one of the few people in Germantown, North Carolina, to own a telephone. One day in 1919, Mr. Tuttle received a phone call that Charlie Lawson's father, Gus, had died of pneumonia. Mr. Tuttle sent his young daughter, Beulah, to deliver the horrible news. Beulah said, quote, It was a real cold day. My father had asked me to go down to the Lawsons and tell them the news. When I went in his bedroom and told him, Charlie started hollering and crying and almost scared me to death. I was only about nine or ten years old at the time. Charlie Lawson was so ill that he was unable to attend his own father's funeral. It was months before he was well enough to pay his respects at his father's grave. On November 10th, 1920, Charlie and Fanny Lawson celebrated the sixth birthday of William, their second son. At that time, little William had a cold, and the cold quickly developed into pneumonia. Charlie Lawson rode his old horse mauled bareback all the way to summon Dr. Byam, who came to the Lawson house and told Fanny and Charlie plainly that their child, William, may likely die. Dr. Byam held vigil with the family all night long. But on Tuesday... November 16th, 1920, little William Lawson died a week after his sixth birthday. As he looked at his dead six-year-old son's now covered face, Charlie Lawson was heard to say through his tears, Last year, my father, now my little boy. Tragedy, especially the deaths of children, seemed to haunt the many branches of the Lawson family in North Carolina from this moment onward. Human tragedies I must say, that were common in countless rural American families throughout the first decades of the 20th century. This is only one family story to represent the many history no longer remembers. Fanny Lawson gave birth to her third daughter, Maybell, in 1922. Also in 1922, Charlie Lawson's sister, Dosia, lost her two-year-old daughter, Ola, in a horrific accident. 
While Dosia was doing household work, she asked one of her older children to watch the younger ones, which was common and necessary, with so much work always to be done. Little Ola got too close to the fireplace while playing and burned to death. In the fall of 1922, Jetty Lawson, the wife of Charlie's older brother Marion, had one of her infant sons, Chester, stop breathing in her arms. Charlie and Fanny Lawson's family continued to grow. On on April 5th, 1925, James was born, followed by Raymond on February 18th, 1927. The two branches of the Lawson clan that lived in Germantown Marion and Charlie's wives and children often visited one another on Sundays. That was family time. Time for eating food, fellowship, gossip, and playtime for all the children. One of Marion and Jetty's daughters, Stella, recalled that she would sometimes go stay the night at Charlie and Fanny's house and play with Marie, Arthur, Carrie, and Maybelle, but Stella recalled later in life, quote, We enjoyed spending the night with them when Mother and Dad would let us, but I can't ever remember Uncle Charlie at any time that he would let Marie, Carrie, or Arthur spend a night with us at all. I didn't understand why. As the summer of 1927 ended, Charlie was hard at work finishing the back-breaking labor of bringing in yet another crop of tobacco. He was using a mattock, to clear out an area that had become overgrown with weeds, and he did not notice the remains of an old barbed wire fence. Charlie's mattock hit the wire, and the mattock recoiled, striking him hard on the forehead. The wound bled profusely. But the local doctor assured Charlie that the injury was not serious, although it left him with half his face as a dark black bruise that remained for months. Some have speculated that this head injury may have caused Charlie Lawson's personality to change, and perhaps may have been a factor in what was to happen. Some dispute this theory. We cannot know for sure if it had any impact on what was to come in the following years. Marion and Charlie Lawson had a younger brother named George, who married a woman named Nina. 
Soon, George and Nina Lawson were expecting their first child. Actually, it was to be twins. When Nina went into labor, Marion's wife, Jetty, assisted with the birth. There were no doctors called for childbirth unless there was a clear emergency early on. Women helped one another through this milestone, using knowledge passed on to them from their mothers and grandmothers and their own inevitably constant experiences with pregnancy and childbirth. When Nina Lawson gave birth to her twins in April 1928, a boy and a girl, they were stillborn. The families came together to mourn. Jetty Lawson herself was pregnant again. A few days after the deaths of Nina's twin babies, Jetty slipped and fell on a steep hill near the tobacco barn. It soon became clear that she was going into labor a full month early. Her husband, Marion Lawson, summoned the local doctor who actually had to put his hands inside of Jetty to turn the baby into the proper position to be born. The birth was successful, but Jetty never recovered. She died from blood poisoning just a few days after giving her premature daughter the name Hallie Marie on May 1st, 1928. Marion Lawson, her husband, suspected that the doctor had been drunk when he arrived to tend to Jetty, remarking that he never even saw the doctor wash his hands before putting them inside of her. Marion described Jetty's final moments to his brothers, Charlie and George. He said that Jetty had pointed toward the ceiling and said, There, I'm going to my heavenly home. I'm not afraid to die, but I hate leaving you and all of my babies. That remark may have continued to echo in Charlie Lawson's mind. Baby Hallie Marie died a few days after her mother, Jetty Lawson, but the Lawson families carried on. There was no other choice. As the Christmas of 1927 came and went, a neighbor named Ralph Miller noticed that Charlie Lawson's children, Mary, uh, Arthur, Carrie, Maybelle, James, and Raymond, 
had not received any gifts from Santa Claus, nor was their home decorated for the holidays like so many others were, even in a simple way. As the Christmas of 1928 approached, Ralph Miller went to Charlie Lawson and offered to help. Charlie Lawson refused any aid, saying the family didn't need to celebrate Christmas. One day, Ralph watched Charlie's truck leave the farm, and he went over to the Lawson house with bags of fruit and candy for all the Lawson children. Fanny Lawson accepted them gratefully and told her children not to say anything about the gifts from Santa to her father. Also, sometime in 1928, Fanny Lawson apparently began speaking in whispers to her female relatives that she thought there was something wrong between Charlie and their eldest daughter, Marie. But Fanny would not say what she thought it was. In May of 1929, the Lawson family was hard at work in the tobacco fields. Arthur, the eldest son at 16 years old, had grown to a height of over six feet taller than his father Charlie. One day in the fields, Charlie accused Arthur of working sloppily and uprooting some tobacco plants. Arthur said he was doing it just like his father had told him to. And then Charlie went into the nearby forest and cut down a branch to beat Arthur with for talking back to him. Seeing his father approaching him with the switch, Arthur looked directly into his father Charlie's raged-filled eyes and said, No, Papa. You ain't going to whip me today. You'll never be man enough to whip me again. Charlie Lawson raised the switch to whip his son Arthur, but Arthur caught it in his hand and broke it into two pieces before throwing it to the ground, and Arthur said, You ain't going to whip me no more. For a few moments, Charlie seethed, then he walked away. His son Arthur was a man now, taller and stronger than him. That is a fact worth remembering. In the summer of 1929, Marion Lawson found his brother Charlie standing alone in a field near the railroad track. Marion asked Charlie what was wrong, 
but Charlie refused to meet his brother's gaze. Charlie said he had been having crippling headaches, headaches so bad he was unable to sleep. He had also developed a large red rash that covered his upper torso. He opened up his shirt and showed it to his brother Marion. Charlie said he had been to four or five doctors, none of whom were able to tell him what was wrong. Charlie Lawson then said out of the blue, Sometimes it seems like just seems like there's trouble at every turn. Marion asked his brother Charlie if he wanted to talk about whatever the trouble was. Charlie Lawson said nothing. He turned and walked away from Marion, stopping near the railroad track, staring off into the distance. Marion did not follow his brother. He left. It was a decision he regretted for the rest of his life. Around this time, Marion's daughter Stella witnessed Marie Lawson asking her father Charlie for five dollars. Charlie Lawson gave the five dollars to his daughter Marie without saying a word or asking a single question. Stella remembered this as odd, because five dollars in 1929 would be fifty dollars in 2020. On August 26th, 1929, Fanny Lawson gave birth to a beautiful little girl named Mary Lou. One night in the fall of 1929, Fanny Lawson awoke to find that her husband Charlie was not in bed. He was not in the house. After making sure that baby Mary Lou was sleeping peacefully, Fanny went outside into the chilly air. She found her husband Charlie on his knees by one of the fields. He was crying and praying. He stopped when he noticed Fanny. Fanny asked Charlie if his head was hurting again, and Charlie said he could barely stand the pain. He told Fanny to go back into the house, but Fanny said she would not go in without him. After a few moments of tense silence, Charlie stood up and started walking towards her with her back into the house. It was only when Charlie stood up 
that Fanny noticed. He had a shotgun with him. Arthur Lawson began to sleep fully clothed every night during this fall of 1929, just in case something happened that he needed to stop. Charlie Lawson's behavior became more erratic and unsettling. He could not sleep. He would sob uncontrollably and pray to God. More than once, Fanny found Charlie cleaning and checking his three guns. In the middle of the night, something he began to do obsessively. Once, Fanny left the house in the hours before dawn and found Charlie sitting on the railroad tracks in front of a small fire he had made staring into the distance. Fanny confided all these things to Nina Lawson and other relatives she trusted. Fanny also confided to others that Charlie had told her he was planning a big surprise for the family for Christmas. But he refused to tell her what the surprise was. This is the testimony of Ella May Johnson from the book The Meaning of Our Tears. Quote, It was only a week or two before Christmas that year. Marie asked her mother if it would be okay for her to spend the night with me. Marie and I often exchanged visits with one another. I was actually in Carrie's class at school, and Carrie and I were friends too, but Marie and I had formed a close friendship during that last school year. My family and I lived right next door to the Germanton school. Marie often went home to eat lunch with me, my mother, my family. Ella May Johnson noticed that Marie Lawson was quieter than usual that night. As they were about to go to sleep, Ella May asked Marie what was wrong, and Marie began to cry. Marie said she didn't know if she could tell Ella May her secret. And Ella May told Marie that she was her friend. Earlier that year, Ella May had told Marie Lawson that Her father had been molesting her, and this led to the closeness between the two. I told you about all the things my father done to me, Ella May said to Marie. Marie finally confessed that she was pregnant. 
Ella May asked her who the father was. Marie Lawson said, Oh, Ella, it's my papa's baby. Ella May asked Marie if her mother, Fanny, knew this, and Marie replied, Yes. She realized a few weeks ago I had missed my time twice already. She kept on asking me and asking me about it over and over and over. I just finally told her, Mama, if you must know, it's Papa's baby. What did she say? Ella May asked. Marie looked at her friend and said, What could she say? There was silence, and then Ella May asked, Does your father know yet? And Marie answered, Yeah, he knows. He said if I told anyone, especially Mama, there would be some killing done. Only a few days after Marie's conversation with Ella May, Charlie Lawson took his family to Winston-Salem to buy them all new clothes and have their Christmas portrait taken. On December 18th, 1928-1929, one week before Christmas Day, 1929, a nearby neighbor named Martha Tuttle Montgomery passed away. The Lawson families all went to her funeral, and afterward the men stood talking by the fire. Charlie Lawson was overheard to say during this conversation, I wouldn't mind dying but I would want to take my family with me. On December 20th, 1929, Six to eight inches of snow fell in Germantown, North Carolina, turning the local fields and forests into a winter wonderland. It would be a rare white Christmas. The Lawson family awoke on Christmas morning to a farm covered in snow. The young children, James and Raymond, went outside to play with a neighbor boy near the same age named Hassel Miller. Arthur went out rabbit hunting with a few buddies. Marie Lawson began to bake a raisin cake. 
Marie's passion was baking, and she was constantly borrowing cake tins from neighbors to do more ambitious baking experiments. Meanwhile, Carrie and Maybelle Lawson were preparing to go visit their uncle Elijah, who lived nearby. After a few hours of hunting and shooting at tin cans for target practice, Arthur Lawson and his friends ran out of ammunition. They returned to the Lawson house, and Arthur asked his father Charlie if he could borrow some ammunition from him. And Charlie Lawson replied, No, I don't have much left and I may want to go hunting myself a little later. His son, Arthur, replied, Well, I guess we could just walk on up to Germantown and get some more shells from the store. Yeah, said Charlie. With all this snow, why don't you just walk up there and get some more? And so... Arthur Lawson and his friends began their walk toward town. This is a bare-bones narrative of what happened next, based on the available facts. After Arthur Lawson left the farm, Charlie Lawson went outside to the tobacco barn where he had hidden his three guns. He waited for his daughters, Carrie, 12 years old, and Maybell, 7 years old, to walk out of the house on their way to visit their uncle Elijah. When they came outside, Charlie raised his rifle. Carrie said, No, Papa, please don't shoot us. She covered her face with her hand, and her father pulled the trigger, the bullet going through her hand and into her head. A nearby neighbor heard someone say the words I just said, followed by the sound of gunshots. People hunted all the time in this area, so hearing gunshots was not at all unusual. The neighbor was troubled by the words they heard, but decided they must have been mistaken. After shooting his daughter, Carrie, Charlie's first gun jammed. He picked up the second and with it shot his daughter, Maybelle. Both of them were still alive after being shot, bleeding in the snow. Charlie went to them and bludgeoned them both to death with the butt of his rifle, taking care not to damage their faces. Then he pulled his youngest daughter's bodies into the barn. He placed stones under their heads, closed their eyes, 
and crossed their arms over their chests. Next, Charlie's wife, Fanny, 37 years old, came out of the front door to gather some firewood from the porch. Charlie shot Fanny in the chest, sending the firewood flying. She fell onto the porch, bleeding profusely. Charlie drug Fanny's body into the house so the neighbors would not hear her screams. Marie Lawson, his daughter, 17 years old, saw this happen. She was standing in front of the fireplace at the time, curling her hair. Marie then turned to grab a fire poker to defend herself, and that is when her father shot her in the back, leaving a large hole in the middle of her body. The force from the shotgun blast propelled Marie Lawson violently forward onto the fireplace mantle, breaking her neck, her wrist, and some of her teeth. Hassel Miller, the young boy who had been playing with young James and Raymond Lawson, saw this all happen. He said Charlie looked him in the eyes and Hassel ran home. He never told anyone he had been there at the time of the massacre, not until he was on his deathbed many decades later. At this same moment, the local mailman passed by the Lawson house and heard gunshots and screams. He went on his route and said nothing. James Lawson, four years old, hid under the bed. Raymond Lawson, two years old, hid under the stove. Charlie Lawson, their father, pulled little Raymond out from under the stove and bludgeoned him to death again taking care not to damage his face. Then he chased little James, his little son, from beneath the bed and killed him in the same manner as his brother. And then the little baby, Mary Lou, four months old, again taking care not to damage her face. The Lawson farm was now silent. There was so much blood in the room that Charlie Lawson actually slipped and fell in it right next to the corpse of Marie, his daughter, whom he had molested and impregnated. Charlie Lawson then went through the house, going from bed to bed, taking the pillows his dead family had slept on and placing them beneath their heads. Again, he closed all their eyes and crossed all their arms across their chests. 
He left bloody handprints going up the stairs to the second floor. At this time, Charlie's younger brother Elijah happened to visit the Lawson farm, noticing the strange silence on this Christmas afternoon. They looked through the windows and saw the carnage, and then they ran for help. And as they were leaving, they saw Charlie Lawson's face watching them from the window on the second floor of the murder house. As Elijah and his friends went to alert neighbors and authorities, Charlie Lawson went into the nearby woods. His faithful dogs, Sam and Queen, followed him and stayed with Charlie as he paced around one single tree for hours. At some point, Charlie took a pencil and wrote two notes on paper receipts he had in his coat. One started, quote, Troubles can cause The other note stated, Nobody to blame, but... He never finished either note, but continued to walk around the tree with his one working gun in his hands. Word quickly spread around the Germanton community that someone had killed the whole Lawson family, and soon various neighbors and family members began to gather outside the farm, many of the men armed with their own guns. In the town of Germanton, someone ran into the general store and shouted, Someone's killed the Lawson family! Arthur Lawson, the eldest son, happened to be there, and he replied, That can't be. I just left there. So, they drove Arthur Lawson, 16 years old, back to his house. He ran to the front door and tried to open it, but it was blocked by the body of his mother, Fanny. Arthur fell crying to the ground, holding on to his mother's feet, until the onlookers dragged him away to a place nearby where he could not see the rest of the carnage. The police arrived. Nobody knew where Charlie Lawson was. As the police were discovering the bodies of Carrie and Maybell laid out in the barn, Charlie's dogs, Sam and Queen, arrived barking at the scene attracted by all the commotion. It was at that moment that a loud shotgun blast was heard echoing from the nearby woods. The policeman followed it and found the body of Charlie Lawson dead by suicide. 
his red blood still steaming in the white snow. It was clear to everyone in the community what had happened. Only a few knew the reason why it had happened. Fanny, Marie, Carrie, Maybell, James, Raymond, Mary Lou, and Charlie Lawson were all buried in the same grave, a grave six feet deep, nine feet in width, and twenty feet long. All of them were buried in white coffins, except for Charlie. His coffin was gray. Thousands of people attended the funeral, and all those who processed by their bodies said that they just looked asleep. One person, a stranger, looked upon the dead face of Marie Lawson and thought, She was such a pretty girl. In the days and weeks and months after the Lawson family tragedy, hundreds of people went to the site of the murders. Because of this, Marion Lawson, Charlie's older brother, decided to open the house as a tourist attraction on Sundays. People were charged 25 cents for admission to view the scene of the crime, just as it had been left on Christmas Day, 1929, with most of the family's possessions still intact and all their bloodstains left on the floor and the walls. Marie Lawson's Christmas raisin cake was left on the kitchen table just as it had been that horrific day, covered by a glass cake saver because people kept picking the raisins off it as souvenirs. All of the money earned from this endeavor, and it was many things, Thousands of dollars over the years the house was open in the midst of the Great Depression. All that money was given to the only survivor here, Arthur Lawson. Arthur Lawson, who eventually became known exclusively as Buck Lawson, was an alcoholic for the rest of his life. And one can hardly blame him. But he was also remembered by those who knew him as a kind 
and fun-loving man beginning a few years after his family was annihilated. It seems that he was able to shake off the tragedy, at least in part, and live his life as fully as was possible given what had happened to him. He eventually married and had four children, one of which was named poignantly after his lost little sister, Maybelle. A woman who knew Arthur Buck Lawson, named Beulah Smith Robbins, said the following in Trudy Smith's book, The Meaning of Our Tears. I knew him very well. He had the most beautiful eyes I have ever seen. They were the color of a beautiful blue sky on a summer's day. I'll never forget them. Buck told me his daddy never could have killed them all if he had been there that day. He said he would have stopped them. He said his daddy might have killed one or two, perhaps his mother. But if Buck had been there, his daddy would never have been able to kill them all. Relative Bertha Lawson George also said of Arthur Buck Lawson, He really loved his children. Sometimes he would sit at the dinner table while his family ate their meal, and he would forget to eat his own food. He was so happy watching his little children, and we all couldn't help but feel that he longed desperately for his lost little brothers and sisters. Arthur Buck Lawson died in a car accident on May 5th, 1945. He was only 31 years old. After this, Charlie's brother, Marion Lawson, and his daughter, Stella Lawson, burned all the furniture, the clothes, the personal possessions left in the Lawson family cabin. They buried the murder weapons, and they buried Marie's Christmas raisin cake, petrified after all these years in an unmarked grave. The bloodstains were still visible in the cabin after all this time. But, as one final offering of remembrance, Marion Lawson placed handwritten pieces of paper on the floor of the house and the barn with the names of Fanny, Marie, 
Carrie, Maybell, James, Raymond, and Mary Lou on the exact spots where each of them had been slaughtered on December 25, 1929. They left the front door unlocked, and they never returned. By the 1980s, the Lawson murder house was gone. The motive behind the Lawson family murders remained a shameful, well-kept secret for a little over 60 years. It was not until 1990 when Trudy J. Smith was researching her book White Christmas, Bloody Christmas, that the now elderly Stella Lawson Bowles decided to go on the record with what she knew. This confession was then corroborated by the testimony of Ella May Johnson, Marie Lawson's close friend near the end of her life. Ella May Johnson's father eventually spent Ten years in prison for his crimes of rape and incest against her. Ella May's friend Marie Lawson was murdered by her father, Charlie Lawson, who raped and impregnated her. These Two women told the truth, and the truth matters. That is why Trudy J. Smith wrote her extraordinary book, The Meaning of Our Tears, which takes its title from the epitaph found on the Lawson family's mass grave in Germantown, North Carolina. It reads, Not now, but in the coming years, it will be a better land. We'll read the meaning of our tears, and then sometime, We'll understand. I'd like to take you back now to that Christmas day of 1929. As the bodies of the slaughtered Lawson family were removed from the house, 
one of the gawking neighbors decided to return to their car and go home. As they opened the car door, the Lawson's black cat trotted up to them and jumped into one of the car seats. The family's first instinct was to shoo the cat away. But then, the pretty black cat looked at them with its great green eyes and meowed at them. The family realized that the cat now had no one to take care of it. So, they decided to take the Lawson's black cat home with them and it purred on their laps all the way. They adopted it as their own, and that cat went on to live such a long and happy life for so many years in a house filled with people who loved it just like it was their own lost child found in the Christmas snow. And now, going dark.